If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung round their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell, where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worms that eat them do not die, the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, as was his custom. He taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? He replied. They said Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Well, Father, as we come to these words, this teaching, this truth, Lord, I pray that we would, um, that we would uh, come underneath it, Lord, that we would be challenged by it, that you would speak to us individually, that you would change us through it. Lord, we know your word is powerful. We know it's living and active, and we know that it has the power to change us. So we pray um, that over these next few moments that you would administer um, grace in what we hear and that you would administer truth and that you would administer um, a challenge for us in some way that you want to change us and make us more like your son, Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask now, can someone grab me a glass of water, please? Because I've already drunk everything that was already here. <laughs> so that'll be, thank you, Grant. I appreciate that. Well, we're back in Mark's Gospel again today. It's been wonderful, hasn't it, um, to kind of just see how Jesus is revealed and how different people understand who he is in different ways. It takes them a different amount of time. Some people fully understand who he is. Some people don't. Some people don't want to. Thank you, Grant. Thanks very much. But something that's really stuck out to me has just been this whole discourse so far, this whole kind of um, so far in Mark has just been leading us to looking at what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. What does it mean for us to be a disciple of Jesus? What does it mean for us to be part of discipleship relationships? What can we learn from this? And I've just been challenged each and every single week to see how Jesus teaches 
his disciples something every single time we look in the Bible here. He's at work to train them, to make them more like him. And so I think it's been wonderful for us to do this as a church together. Look at this. How is Jesus training us? What does he want us to do? How does he want us to be with one another? How does he want us to be closer to him? And so we've we've used these terms, disciple, discipleship, a lot. And I just want to kind of make sure we're on kind of like the same track when we're talking about these things. These terms are used a lot. And so what is a disciple? Simply a disciple is someone in the New Testament that is a Christian that follows Jesus. Simple as that. You're a Christian. You are a disciple of Jesus. And what then is discipleship? What does it mean to, to, to be in discipleship relationships? Well, firstly... There's following Jesus and his commands and trusting and learning from him. So personally, for us individual, um, to grow in discipleship, to grow in being disciples of Jesus, it means following him and his commands and trusting and learning from him. Does that make sense? That's number one for us individually. But then there's also us helping others follow Jesus and his commands and trusting and helping them trust and learn from him. So there's something for us individually something for us to be involved in corporately together with other people to help them grow in their love for the Lord. And then there's also this word that is in the Bible, making disciples, that we see in Matthew 28, that we're called to go and make disciples in his name. And that means to go and tell people about him, preach the good news. And so there's discipleship is for us individually. It's for us corporately to encourage one another. And it's also for us to go out and tell other people about Jesus. Does that make sense? Just some terms at the start that might be helpful for us to understand what we're looking at today. So, I say that because there is no set strategy for how we are to do that. Churches will do it in different ways. Here at Oikos, what we believe is we have gospel community groups that are kind of like the heartbeat of what we do here as a church, where we look to be the family of God, encouraging one another in our faith, encouraging one another in who we're speaking about Jesus, And just doing life together. That's one way of which you can do that. There are other ways that churches do it, and they're all good and all great. But that is when there's no set strategy in how to do that. But what we see here from Jesus' teaching in Mark's gospel is what it means to be a true disciple of his. And a couple of weeks I preached on this, wasn't it? It's like, how do we take up our cross each and every day and follow him and truly follow him? What does that look like for us to be a disciple of Jesus where we're called to take up our cross daily and follow him? Really hard teaching, wasn't it? To be willing to suffer for him, to be opposed for him. All those things, to be a disciple of his. Well, sometimes, I don't know about you, but when I, I like an easy life. Does anyone else like an easy life? Anyone else guilty? Yeah, I like an easy life. And so if I can do the bare minimum for something, sometimes that can be my default setting. I'm just confessing to the whole church now, my default setting. I remember when I was at university, my first year, you had to get 40% to pass. And so my goal for that year was to get 41%. Nailed it. So, So I could have the rest of my time to myself. And sometimes, maybe... (laughs) it was a sports course as well so uh, um, I kicked the ball not that well Um, anyway um, I'm going off on a tangent here already but 
But I say that because sometimes maybe when we think about discipleship, our own discipleship relationship with Jesus, and maybe how we're helping others in that, can I, can we, be guilty of what's the bare minimum I can do and be a disciple of Jesus? That can be in my heart sometimes. But what we see here in in the Gospel of Mark, we've seen that Jesus has a real high view of discipleship and the importance of it. The importance of it for personally for us and also for us with other people in our relationship. And so I want to flourish and I want us to flourish as a church and I think we are. And I want us to continue that by maintaining this high view of discipleship like Jesus does and that we see in the Gospel of Mark here. And so what we've seen so far is we have to take up our cross and follow him because it, will be, it may be painful now at times following Jesus, but there's a wonderful glory to come. There's much joy in the here and now, but there's also a wonderful glory that comes when we go to be with him, that we will receive the crown of glory. But also we saw last week that Grant was talking about was who is the greatest the disciples are talking about. And Jesus is saying, oh, to be the greatest, you need to be the least. You need to put yourself last. Be servant of all. Be a humble servant. That's what Jesus wants us to be. Put ourselves last and be the least. Hard teaching, isn't it? Love and care for the least in society. Those that are different from us. Those that might be harder to love. Children, widows, orphans, the homeless. Jesus says we need to have a lower view of ourselves and a loftier view of them. See them as more important than ourselves. As in, in discipleship. Well, Why are they having this argument about who is the greatest? What is the heart of what is going on? I think it's their pride, isn't it? They've just gone out and been healing people, all such sorts of things. They've come back, and they're probably a bit like, wow, look what I can do. That's what pride is, isn't it? A a feeling of deep pleasure or satisfaction derived from one's own achievement. I'm great. Look at what I can do. Jesus is going to gently and lovingly bring them down a peg or two. You need to be the least, the greatest to get rid of your pride. And their pride is stopping them moving towards the least, stopping the children from coming to Jesus. It's been on my mind this week, how often does my pride, my feeling of lofty status compared to others, stop me from moving towards the least, from letting people come to him, how often do I prevent even sharing the gospel with certain people because they're different than me and not like me? Jesus is like, no, you need to humble yourself. True greatness is humble servanthood. And so will we accept that call? To be humble servants, to empty ourselves to him. Well, Jesus has this high view of discipleship, and that's why he's spending so long talking about it. And so let's see if we can have this high view of discipleship as well. As humble servant-like disciples, we can have a high view of discipleship by taking sin seriously, we see today. We just see two things today. We can have a high view of discipleship when we take sin seriously. And when we talk about sin, um, we talk about rejecting God and ignoring God who has created us, living without any reference to him. And that plays out in so many ways, doesn't it? Us doing things that hurt other people doing things that push us further away from God, ignoring him and what he has for us. What Jesus says here, look what he says. He says, if anyone, if anyone causes one of these little ones 
That's those who believe in me to stumble. It would be better for them if a large millstone was hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. I don't know about you, but that is a really hard to hear, really hard to hear words, isn't it? Anyone causes one of these little ones, that's those who believe in me, the believers, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. Stern words. Jesus is saying, don't put a stumbling block in front of other people in coming to me, especially believers. Don't, don't put anything on top of them. Don't use your pride to put anything or any obstacles in the way to stop them from coming to me. It's a hard hearing, isn't it? That's the extent to which Jesus hates us, causing putting stumbling blocks in the way of other believers. One scholar says this. He says, if there's a temptation to abuse the role and authority that we've been given as Christians within our community, one way we can put a stumbling block in front of other believers is is to put on unrealistic expectations on people what it means to follow Jesus. Just think about what was going on in 1 Corinthians. Paul was speaking to the church there, saying, why are you not eating with the poor Christians? Why are you not breaking bread with them in the same room? Why are they sitting in a different room and not allowed to be with you as you take communion? They're believers too. Why would you put that stumbling block in their way? Why? Pride. They're different than me. They're not as good as me. They can't have food with me. How this can play out in our communities, maybe in our hearts sometimes, can be the pride of thinking that people's lives must look like mine. Other Christians' lives must look like my life. I've got it sorted. Why don't they? Why don't they read the Bible every single day? They should get up really early in the morning. If they're early in the morning, they're not a holy Christian. They should know better than that. Why have they done that again? They should be, you fill in the blank. You see, it's healthy and good for us to want people to walk closely with the Lord, but we're not to put an obstacle in their way as they do it. We're not to put unfair, or we're not to outwork our pride in a way that causes people to stumble, putting a higher bar than even Jesus puts on them. We want people to be like us rather than like Jesus We want to point people to Jesus. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this um, in his book, Life Together, which is an absolutely brilliant read, especially the first chapter. um, is absolutely fantastic on community. And he says this in Christian community. He goes, be careful not to idolize what we want community to look like. It must look like this, otherwise we're not reaching the bar and no one else is. We must be careful not to conform people to us But instead, we're asking people to conform to Christ. He says, be centered on Jesus Christ. That is what you have in common. Don't forget that. Be careful not just to become like any community group there is. So speak much of Jesus. Be thankful for each other. And make sure the word is brought to bear on each other's lives. That's what we're called to do in our Christian community. Not to have not to put obstacles in the way of people. See, Jesus, then in this next section, 
I mean, it's even harder to hear, isn't it? If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands and go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. Better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Now he's using hyperbole here, or as I, until three years ago, thought it was called hyperbole, until the English teacher told me it's hyperbole. Um, But he's exaggerating, isn't he? He's kind of making a point that's saying, this is how much I hate sin. God hates sin. Not literally telling us to cut our arms off, as some people have taken it to mean. Because actually, where's the problem? Is it our arms? Is it our legs? Where does it start? In our hearts. It's our hearts where pride, sin, all found. It's where they start. How much he hates sin. He says that in verse 49, everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another saying is, I want your lives to be a sacrifice that is worthy. Sprinkled salt on it, flavoursome and good. What they used to do in the Old Testament sacrifice was they put salt before the, the lamb was burnt, before the, the, the animal was burnt. It was pleasing to God, and he wants our lives to have that same attitude, that they are sprinkled with salt, they are seasoned with salt. They're a pleasing sacrifice to him by having a servant heart attitude that takes sin seriously. How seriously do we take sin? How aware are we that we are sinning at some points? How often do we go to repentance to him in faith? Forgive me, Lord. We need to take immediate action. That's what he's saying here. A saving faith is a fighting faith. We will fight sin, whether it's pride, anger, lust, whatever it may be, We will fight that because we know it's actually going to end up putting obstacles in the way of other people as well. It's going to cause other people to stumble as we we sin. And so a question for you to maybe think about and to write down. Are there stumbling blocks that you could be putting in another believer's discipleship journey? Are there any stumbling blocks that you could be putting in another believer's discipleship journey? Or is there... Another question, I'm not going to on here, but is there anything in your life, a sinning life, that the Lord is asking you to wage war on? Take it seriously. As humble servant-like disciples, we can have a high view of discipleship by taking sin seriously. Because what does he say at the end? He goes, in verse 50, be at peace with each other. He knows the way in which we're going to be at peace with each other is if we are living lives, sacrificial to him, we will live at peace with each other. That's what he wants for us. So as humble servant-like disciples, we can have a high view of discipleship by taking sin seriously. And I've tackled a lot in <laughs> these topics that are very large in one sermon. But we can also do it by taking marriage seriously. We take sin seriously in our discipleship relationships, and our own and our personal one and that with others. But we also can do it, we see here, that Jesus talks about marriage, having a high view of marriage and taking it seriously. So, 
I know um, here there is this passage is a wonderful passage, a truthful passage, but also is one of much debate among scholars that we would hold in high regard. There is disagreement on divorce and remarriage, even amongst um, evangelical scholars that we very much um, hold and will quote and so forth. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to do what Jesus does here in this passage, which is the Pharisees come to talk about divorce. And what does Jesus do? He talks about how brilliant marriage is, what it's supposed to look like. And so that's what I want to do today. I want us to look at the beauty of marriage and how it can be used in our discipleship relationships. So what we see here is, it's interesting, the Pharisees come to Jesus to try and trick him. Um, He's in the area where um, John the Baptist had been beheaded because he had spoken out against Herod and his um, marriage to his brother's wife. And he got beheaded for it. Pharisees, no doubt, are probably trying to get him into trouble too. And what does Jesus do? He gives them a beautiful view of what marriage is supposed to be about. Let's have a look at this in chapter 10. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, as was his custom, and he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by saying, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? He replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Why did God allow? uh, So, so why did God allow divorce? And he says this: it it was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. Because your hearts were hard, God allowed for divorce because to protect the innocent party, didn't want them to be um, for the rest of their lives be overlooked and outcasted. He wanted to protect innocent party and so there were two schools of thought at the time there was the conservative rabbi Shammai who said the only grounds for divorce was sexual morality which is what it talks about in Deuteronomy and in Matthew and then there was the more liberal school of Rabbi Hillel where divorce could be granted for any indecency or indiscretion so even if a wife cooked a bad meal they were able to the man was able to divorce them and in this time Rabbi Hillel, the liberal, was the one that was followed by most Jews. The divorce wasn't even, was, was commonplace, but, and it wasn't even something that they thought was really even a, a big thing to talk about. But Jesus sets out to say, oh, well, there's, a, there's a brilliant blueprint for what marriage is about. There's a great blueprint for what marriage is about. But I think we'll see that every generation and in every culture, nobody has a high enough view of marriage. No one's ever had it. Biblical versus human vision for marriage, there's a massive chasm between it. And often in our society, there's quite a low view on marriage, isn't there? Let's get a prenup, because when it goes wrong, we'll be all right. That seems to be the attitude nowadays. But Jesus is like, no, there's, there's an absolutely beautiful view of marriage that I want you to see. And it's interesting, in Matthew's account in chapter 19, Amy, I was chatting to Amy about this this week when she was reading it, and she when, when Jesus gives this beautiful view of what marriage is about, the disciples say, if such is the case uh, of, of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. They think it's better not to marry than have this beautiful view of what marriage is supposed to be about. So let's have a look. What is marriage about? So here we go. 
we see that marriage, first of all, is God's doing. What does Jesus do? He takes, um, he quotes Moses, um, that Moses wrote in Genesis 1 and 2. Jesus replied, but at the beginning of creation, what happened? God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife. And the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Marriage is God's design. He designed marriage. God even gives away the first bride. He makes Eve from Adam and gives, gives Eve to Adam. He is the father of the first ever bride. He speaks marriage into existence. He's the one that said they will leave father and mother and be united to his wife. God gives marriage as a one flesh union between a man and a woman. It's an act of God that he allows that to happen and then it is bound through sexual union. It's binding covenantal promise between the man and the woman and first and foremost before God that he is ordained, that he is allowed. And that's why it says, therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. If it's before God, if it's God's doing... No one can separate it other than God, and he's not going to do that. I remember at our wedding practice the night before me and Nikki got married seven years ago, yeah, seven, seven-ish, around that. Um, we had a practice, as you do, and Nikki was practicing walking down the aisle. So we'd selected a piece of music, Nikki had selected a piece of music. It was about six minutes long. We're talking like royal procession here. And so for the first three minutes, nobody was walking down the aisle. It was just, people were just going to stand, and it was just going to be a beautiful piece of music. And all of a sudden, page boys and all that will start walking down. Um, I don't imagine that. <laughs> okay. Um, I don't even know why I'm saying this now. I can't remember. Anyway, um, and I remember the... the um, the vicar was standing there, and, and, and he wasn't happy at all. And he was getting more disgruntled, making little noises and comments and stuff. And I just I said, oh, listen, don't, I'm not going to say his name. Um, he's not here. Um, I said, look, it's Nikki's wedding day. She can have whatever she wants. And his response, I always remember. You were there, suckers, weren't you? But this is true. It's not Nikki's wedding day. It's God's. This is about God, not about Nikki. Not just Nicky, sorry. And do you know what? Although I didn't like it, he, he was right. God's day as well, isn't it? He's the one that's binding this marriage together, this one, this seems to be one flesh marriage before God. He is the main person, main thing that we are celebrating through this union of marriage, aren't we? It's about God. Marriage is God's doing because Marriage is not just about love. It's not just about stability for family. It's not just about childbearing. It is those things, but it's, but it's more than that. Marriage, first and foremost, is to bring glory to God through, through marriage. What he wants us to do is to bring glory to him. Paul talks about this in Ephesians 5. He talks about how, um, let's see if I can read it on there, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. But we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Marriage is to be is patterned after Christ's 
covenant commitment to his church. Marriage patterns Christ's promise, unbreakable promise and commitment to his church that he would come for her, that he would die for her, and that he would bring her um, into eternal life. An unbreakable covenant because Jesus is the bridegroom of his people, the church. That's That's what marriage is, a picture of that, a picture of Christ's commitment to those that love him, the promise that we will one day go to be with him and be at the wedding feast, the mighty wedding feast in heaven. That's why, therefore, what God has joined together, that no one separate. Because Jesus cannot divorce his bride. Once we're united with him, once we've become one with him, it is impossible for him to let us go. For him to divorce us, for him to say, nah, my perfect life, my death, doesn't matter, the sin I said I'd paid for you, no, doesn't matter anymore, it doesn't, what are the consequences of that? He would never walk away from you. And, I, and this even struck me even more, the fact that we are, he is our bridegroom, the church of his bride, and yet we cheat and are adulterous towards him each and every single day when we tell him when we sin, when we choose to go our own way. And yet he doesn't break that commitment, does he? He never does. Even though we maybe go far from him, he doesn't let us go if we're truly his. The book of Hosea is a whole book in the Bible about how God's people have cheated on him, an adulterous nation, and yet he keeps forgiving them and letting them come back. God does not let us go even when we try and break the relationship. He never lets us go. Isn't that beautiful? What a beautiful view of marriage we can have, that our marriages are able to show the beauty of what real marriage is to our whole world out there. It's an unbreakable promise that he will never let us go, guys. He will never let you go. So how can we use our marriages then for those that are married? And I, know, um, I can't talk about now with singleness and all those things that I really want to talk about, but there's just no time, and I apologize profusely, but there's some great stuff that I also want to send out to you guys as well on this. But how can the marriages, how can our marriages bring glory to God, and how can they play a role in discipleship for us and one another? Well, firstly... Our marriages are to be a witness of this unbreakable covenant that Christ has made with us. As we maintain our marriages and keep our marriages, it is able to be a picture of the unbreakable covenant that Christ has with us, that he's made with us. Beautiful picture to the world. I love this. John Piper talks about how he believes that he is the beneficiary of over 10,000 unknown blessings because his parents and his grandparents and his wife's parents and his wife's grandparents were able to stay together. There's this untold blessing that he's not even seen or remembered that has happened because of that. So I say this, I know that many people here, not many, well, some people here may be going through or know of people that have gone through divorces. And I'm not belittling or um, thinking of the pain that has been caused by that or that, has been, that, has gone, that people have gone through. But I still think it's good for us to have this view and see this biblical view of marriage, of what God has ordained and what he would like our marriages to be and how they can be a blessing to others as well. 
Our marriages are not primarily about us. Paul talks about, in Ephesians, how they are to be sacrifices to one another. Husbands, love your wife just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. There's a sacrifice that is made in our marriages that, that, that sanctifies us, that changes us and makes us more like Jesus as we put the other person first. We learn to do that in a really close relationship, don't we? Speak well of our spouses. We can speak well of, our, of those that are married, of, of our spouses. Speak in the highest terms, because as we speak in the highest terms of, one, of our spouses, we also show that how great Christ is. I think also something that has really stuck out to me is how our marriages can be a real blessing for those that are married, can be a real blessing in discipleship to other people. Something that is hard to do, but I think really important to do is not to keep, not to make our, for those that are married, not to make our marriages look like they're perfect when they're not. How unfair is that of people that are seeking to get married and they think everybody else's relationships must look like this perfect relationship that we see at the... We see at church by, the, by everybody. And behind closed doors, there might be all sorts going on that we're not aware of. So we can love others that are seeking to, or wanting to get married by giving them a, a, a realistic view of what marriage looks like in the day-to-day and how it works out. I know in our culture, it's like keep our doors closed, keep our marriages maybe um, separate from those things so people don't see them. But I was really struck by this when I watched a video um, by Jeff Vanderstelt, who's part of this um, Soma Church in America, on how to do gospel community life. And he, was, he um, tells the story of, um, in fact, this guy tells the story of how he came to faith because he was o- over at Jeff's house and saw how him and his wife, when they fell out, let the group speak into that. And um, they would share the gospel with them, they would re- help them reconcile to one another. And then this was the rubber hit the road, literally two or three weeks later, Remember, we used to have um, the Rollison Road lads over, so James, some of you will know James, Andy, and all that, like, would come over on a Monday night for dinner. And me and Nikki had had an, a robust conversation just before they came over. Um, I think I'd been right about something again. And, um, and, uh, and, uh, sorry. They're the robust conversation about me afterwards. Um, and, and it was really, um, there were tears, from my part, um, and the doorbell went, and the doorbell went, and we thought, oh, and my first thing was to be, right, two hours, let's get through it, Nikki, let's smile, we'll be fine, get through it. <sighs> Took a deep breath, opened the door, I was like, hi, oh, hey, can you sit down? And then Nikki kind of got a bit tearful and a bit upset, um, and we were sat there at dinner table where there was a tension there, and then... <laughs> we ended up getting James and to talk us through what had happened. And they helped us reconcile to one another about what I'd done wrong, what Nikki hadn't done wrong and how I needed to apologise. And, um, and it was this beautiful picture of allowing other people... It was hard, and I haven't done it since, I'll be honest with you, but I remember doing this. Um, and it was just a lovely picture of other people being able to speak in and seeing what our marriage was like at times. And they helped us get through that. And I remember doing marriage prep with James just before he got married to Anna, and he said it was one of the things that he can remember and that he wanted to make sure that he had in view in his marriage. And so, so I'm, I want to make sure I'm not saying this to say, wow, look at us, we don't do this all the time at all. 
Um, but it was just a way in which, one some small way in which opening up marriages to help other people in the pursuit of them being married about what a real marriage can look like and how you can use the gospel to speak into each other's lives. So two massive topics, sin and marriage, in 30 minutes. Believe it or not, there's a few things I might have missed out. Um, we might have to do a sermon series on it. But I just want to encourage us that, that as, we, as we seek to be humble, servant-like disciples, we can do this by, if we take sin seriously, cut it off, whatever it may be, pride, lust, anger, and let's not cause one another to sin in our Christian community. Let's not put obstacles in each other's ways as we seek to live life together in close proximity. But also, I think we can do this by having a high view of marriage like Jesus takes it seriously. Let's have this beautiful view of what marriage can be and what it represents, and let's use it for the glory of God. He's given it to us as a beautiful picture, a beautiful picture that we're able to use for his glory. Let me pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it speaks of everything. Thank you that it may be hard to hear, and yet it is for our good. So Lord, I I pray for anyone here that has gone through or is going through or knows um, of people that have gone through difficult marriage breakups. Know that there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Thank you that you love us so much that you care for the innocent party and that you want um, to be loved and welcomed into Christian community. Thank you that there is forgiveness for all sins. Thank you that we do not stand here as perfect people, but as broken people that are um, made righteous purely through the death of And Lord, thank you that you have such a high view on what it means to be a follower of yours. You want us to closely walk with you. You want us to wage war with sin. You want us to to cut it off and cut it out of our hearts. But thank you that we can use everything in our lives to be an opportunity to, to give you glory. Whether that's through marriage, whether that's through singleness, whether whatever that may be, I pray that we would just be faithful to have a high view of discipleship, to disciple ourselves, to disciple one another, to love and care for the lost. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close our time by standing.